0: As we come to the word of God, let us come to God, the God of the word, let us pray together. Our Father, we have just heard very sober words spoken into our ears. Sober because they speak of eternal realities. Sober yet because they speak of frightening eternal realities for those who are without Christ in this world. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, even as we've already prayed, you would give us eyes to see, you would give us hearts to receive, the impress of truth, that we wouldn't leave here in the same way that we came. We wouldn't leave more hardened because we've heard and rejected the word, but we pray that we would leave new creatures in Christ, growing saints in the grace of God, because you have given us ears to hear these things. and. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our hearing, and we pray glorified in our living out the practical implications of the things that we are going to hear this morning. So, Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts and you would open our ears, and we pray that you would enliven our hearts with your grace. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is said that every picture tells a story. And this is certainly true of Jesus' parables. They are moving pictures that tell powerful stories about how to live for Christ in this fallen world. Jesus' stories take common and everyday experiences and clothe them with lessons that teach spiritual truths that force us to ponder sober spiritual realities. The three parables of the lost and found teach such things. We considered them in the previous chapter, chapter 15 of Luke. The parable of the lost sheep teaches that Jesus spares no inconvenience to rescue one lost soul. The parable of the lost coin teaches us the value that Jesus places upon those whom he seeks and finds. The parable of the lost son sets before us the folly of sin and the nature of true repentance. Along with the parables of the lost coin and lost sheep, it wonderfully pictures the joy of our heavenly father in reconciling penitent sinners. This is poignantly pictured in the joy of the waiting father in his reunion with his returning son. But the parable doesn't end there. The joy of the father over the return of his penitent son was not shared by his self-righteous, hard-hearted elder son. His pouting response, even against the warm encouragements of his father, closes the parable on a sad and we might even say sour note. Self-centeredness strangles the soul. It evaporates the milk of human kindness. Now it would seem with the self-centered brother still in mind, Jesus presents the parable of the shrewd steward who served himself and used others Having been discovered squandering his master's funds, the steward prepares for his pending discharge by purchasing favor from his master's debtor by reducing their debts and ingratiating himself to them in the process. And by this shrewd plan, the steward used his master's funds to provide for himself comfortable retirement in the homes of his master's grateful debtors. Jesus' application, I think, is this. As Christians, we must be shrewd in how we invest our heavenly Master's resources for the benefit of others so that we might be received into eternal dwellings. Jesus' heartless, covetous, hearers saw themselves in these pictures that jesus painted they recognized themselves in the elder brother and in the unrighteous steward but they didn't respond in repentance instead they dismissed his teaching and they scoffed at him for exposing their sins and we can do the very same thing when god puts his finger upon our hearts under the preaching of the word we can stick our fingers in our ears figuratively if not literally and scoff at the preacher even as they scoffed at Jesus. So Jesus bends the nail over in his depiction in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And there he illustrates that the love of money will crowd out love for all others, especially, as we see here, for the righteous poor. And I believe Jesus' point here is unmistakable. We cannot serve both God and money, nor can we serve both money and our neighbor. You see, how we use our money and how we use our opportunities for serving God by serving others is a litmus test of our spiritual condition. Commenting on the thrust of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, One old writer, G. Campbell Morgan, says, If a man have wealth, it is a positive sin for him to use it for his own luxury and ease and remain unmindful of the want and needs that lie at his very gate. Money possessing a man is the direst curse, for it hardens his heart and paralyzes his noblest powers. The money of a God-possessed man is a blessing, for it becomes the means of expressing his sympathy with his fellows." End of quote. Now with that brief review and, and introduction, this morning we begin our contemplation of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And we're going to consider it in three messages, Today, we're going to look at the lives of the rich man and Lazarus, contrasted. Next time, we're going to look at the suffering rich man's hopelessness. And then finally, we're going to conclude with a message of pertinent applications. So let us just this morning consider the life of the rich man and Lazarus contrasted. We're gonna see their lives contrasted in life, contrasted at death, and contrasted in eternity. So let us consider these three points this morning. The life of the rich man and Lazarus contrasted first in life, in life. And we see this in verses 19 through 21, which John read for us. Now, as we consider that these men contrasted in life. We're going to look first of all at the rich man's comfort. Jesus' description of the rich man is brief, but it's very telling. This man could well appear on the old TV show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. He satisfied himself with nothing but the best in life. Look at his wardrobe. He spared no expense in outfitting himself in the finest of clothes. In fact, it says that he arrayed himself in purple. Purple was the choice of royalty. He dressed himself like a king. Even his underwear, we might say, was top shelf. Fine linen was the best that money could buy. It was said that European linen was so smooth that it could not be felt against the body. And this wasn't his occasional dress. Today we might refer to him as a clothes horse. And he habitually dressed this way. He did so every day. You see, whatever he wanted, and wherever he went, he had what he wanted, and this, his rich and his fashionable dress turned heads, and it earned him admiring glances. We see, too, his luxurious lifestyle, not just in his clothing. But notice he lived, as it says in the New American Standard Version, he lived gaily in splendor every day. You see, this rich man lived, as we would say today, he lived the life of Riley. And when it came to outfitting his house and enjoying the finer things in life, money was absolutely no object. He ate the richest of foods in kosher terms he ate high on the hog every possible convenience was his he may well have been a great entertainer the envy of all of his neighbors the talk of the town and yet let us not conclude that the rich man became wealthy by dishonest means there's no indication Of that here he may have been a man of impeccable honesty and nor should we necessarily reproach him for enjoying the finer things of this life you see riches themselves are not evil God has given us all things richly to enjoy it's no sin to dress fashionably if modestly or to enjoy the good things of life in moderation while sharing with those in need. But this he didn't do. He may have even regarded his wealth as denoting God's approval, believing that his temporal prosperity forecast his eternal security. I remember going door to door in Sault Ste. Marie, and I met a man on the doorstep And he thought for sure that he was God's favorite because he had all of these temporal and material blessings. And he thought if he enjoyed these things in this life, what is he going to enjoy in the life to come? But he didn't realize that his goods were his God. And that is the case here with this rich man. But Jesus teaches that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Not impossible, but difficult. Because with God, all things are possible. And we're gonna be reminded of Abraham here. And Abraham was fabulously wealthy, but he was a godly man. And that doesn't mean that if you're poor, you're necessarily holy you can be very wicked and in poverty. So let's not conclude that if you're rich, you're a bad guy, and if you're poor, you're a good guy. So there's a lesson here. Jesus actually teaches that present comfort may forecast eternal misery. Now, why is this? Wealth tends to blind us to our own spiritual poverty. Jesus teaches that We are stewards, and all of our possessions are on loan to us from God, and he has the right to command how we use what belongs to him. You see, the rich man cared nothing that he was the steward of God's riches. Careless indulgence of God's gifts inevitably shrivels our soul. Wealth may also blind us to the needs of others. We certainly see that here, don't we? The rich man was blind to the poor man God entrusted to his care. He failed to use previous language to make a friend of poor Lazarus by the means of the mammon of unrighteousness. You See, there's a thread of thought that goes all the way through these parables. Instead, he consumed God's blessing upon his own lust. And for this reason, as we shall see, God did not entrust him with true riches. So that's the rich man's comfort. Let us consider in contrast this, in this life the poor man's misery. To all outward appearances, Lazarus was a most miserable man. He was destitute... He depended upon the charity of others to supply all of his needs. Beggars in that day often sat at the porches of the wealthy, hoping, as it were, for, the, for, for, for crumbs to fall into their mouth from their table. We read that Lazarus was literally cast or thrown at the door of the rich man, and the intent of the verb is he was thrown down and there he remained all the rest of his days. Perhaps the poor man had been disowned and deserted by family or unfeeling friends who shifted the burden of his care away from them and upon the rich men. Uh, he'll take care of him. Lazarus was reduced to feeding himself from scraps tossed to the dogs. And it may be that the dogs got first dibs and he had to content himself with the leftovers. Notice, too, his wretched physical condition. He was a pitiful sight to behold. Like Job, he was covered with oozing, pussy boils. No one dared come near him. And yet the rich man, he knew about him. How could he not? He couldn't have missed Lazarus squirming daily at the gate into his yard. But he did nothing to alleviate his pain. You see, to him, Lazarus was invisible. He just didn't exist. Ironically, Lazarus' only comfort came not from the hand of the rich man but from the tongue tongues of dogs the licking of the dogs has been variously interpreted interpreted excuse me by commentators that the dogs alleviated his pain or they aggravated his pain it seems to me that these stray dogs showed more kindness to Lazarus than the rich man. I think that was Jesus' intent. Stray dogs, also outcasts from society, appear to be Lazarus' best and only friends. But the God who takes pity upon the needy viewed Lazarus in a different light. The name Jesus gives him is suggestive. Lazarus is a shortened form of Eleazar, which means God is my help. And though he was destitute of common comforts and despised by men, Lazarus found his help in the Lord. He was poor in the things of this world, but he was rich in grace. And even while his body suffered, his soul prospered, You see, this pitiful pauper found true and lasting riches waiting for him. And it seems to me that Lazarus here, he suffered without complaint. Why? Because he hoped for the arrival of a better day. He probably knew that his days were numbered, that he wasn't long to be upon this earth, So belief in God's promises made him the richest of men. His ceiling might have been the sky, but over him were the pinions of a, of a gracious God, under him were the everlasting arms, and before him were the, was the cheerful prospect of dwelling forever with a God who was his help. And so that leaves us with a lesson that Jesus here teaches that those detested and disregarded by men may be highly esteemed by God. This world's castoffs may be heaven's favorites. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So that's the rich man and Lazarus briefly contrasted in life. Notice, secondly, these two men contrasted at death. Riches may purchase temporal, temporal comfort here, but they cannot buy in eternal happiness hereafter. The rich man's wealth may have secured care, by the best of physicians, but death comes eventually to all men, it's the great leveler of humanity. In Adam all die, the wages of sin is death, no less for the high and mighty than those who are forsaken and forgotten. One of the psalmists asks, What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol or the power of the grave? Well, we know the answer is no. All of us are, are here terminally. We're all going to die lest Jesus comes back during our lives. And that will be a blessing for Lazarus like people, not for those like the rich man. Neither friends, nor physicians, nor wealth can detain our spirit when God calls us out of this life. It is appointed unto men once to die, and so with the rich man, and so with Lazarus. Both died, and so will we after death comes knocking. It is an appointment that every one of us will keep. We can't hide. We can't get away from death. It is a day for which we all must be ready because death waits for no one. No doubt the rich man was laid in the earth with great pomp and circumstance. There might have been a band playing and and all the important people gathered there to watch him be laid in the earth. But fact of the matter is, he died with everything, and with him, he took nothing. I I don't think I've ever seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. In his glory died with him. His riches were distributed to others. Naked he had come from his mother's womb, and now his cold carcass, clad in purple, was laid in his tomb, Deaf to the sobs of family and friends. Maybe a, a marble monument was erected to his memory in honor. Maybe those who witnessed his entombment may have concluded, when this red, rich man died, he's going to heaven. He had all the earmarks of God's blessing upon him for time, and we trust also for eternity. But appearances can be deceiving. A luxurious life does not necessarily forecast a happy eternity. No mention is made of Lazarus' burial. Perhaps even as he had been cast at the rich man's gate, so he had been dumped unceremoniously into an unmarked grave. Was he surrounded by grieving survivors? Were there many or few or any there? Now we cannot know. He who lived alone may well have died alone. And those who judge by circumstances might have concluded that he who seemed forsaken by God in this life was abandoned by him at death. But again, appearances could be quite deceiving. The earth, earthly fortunes of these two men is dramatically reversed upon their death. Notice them at death. First of all, the poor man's angelic transport to glory. What a glorious day it was for Lazarus when God's angels ushered his disembodied spirit into heaven. Dishonored in life, the good man was highly honored in death. An angelic entourage conducted Lazarus' victorious soul to another and better world. Now we will consider the death both of the godly and the ungodly, in more depth next time. Jesus teaches that the souls of all men, both the righteous and the wicked, live on after the death of the body. There's no such thing as soul sleep between death and the resurrection, nor annihilation, either for the righteous or for the wicked. Lazarus was fully conscious at his death, and so was the rich man, and so they both continue to be. Notice then the rich man's deposit in hell. Now it may be significant that of these two men, Lazarus, the poor man, died first. God in his mercy gave the self-centered rich man more time to repent after the beggar's death. Tragically though, this unnamed rich man, he died in his sin. No angelic visitors ushered him to a better world. We see him after death in Hades or hell. And it's not a pretty picture That we see it should make your hair stand up on the back of your neck or your skin to crawl as you enter in to the pain and suffering that he experienced and still experiences. We behold him writhing in unbearable misery. And as much as the rich man might have wished the false doctrines of soul sleep or annihilation were true. There was absolutely no rest for him in hell. For him, there was only ceaseless, intolerable agony. And here is the end of all who may be rich, but not rich toward God, who fail to make friends by means of the mammon of unrighteousness. You see, the rich man squandered his every opportunity to do Lazarus good. Providence had placed Him at his gate, he probably had to walk around him or even step over him each time he entered or left his property. After death, he no longer had a chance to help the poor man. No opportunity to atone for his neglect. After death, all happiness ended. All comfort was gone. Poof, forever. You see, the chickens of forsaken duty came home to roost, and that with a vengeance. James warns that judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Brethren, do you hear these words? We may not be rich, but we have opportunities. You see, the rich man is finding no mercy now as he is waiting for judgment day. So we've seen the rich man and Lazarus contrasted in life and at death, now contrasted in eternity. The picture doesn't get any brighter for the one, but only gloomier, but brighter for the other. In this amazing parable, Jesus pulls back the thin veil that separates time from this, uh, from eternity in this world, from the next. He teaches crucial truths we must understand if we would be prepared for our own death which may for some of us be soon, and for other of us a long time away, but certain for us all. He teaches that when we die, our never dying soul becomes separated from our dead body. He teaches that only one of two places awaits the departing soul, either heaven or hell, and that there is no other destination. He teaches that our body, when it enters the grave, our soul is assigned an eternal home, either in bliss or agony. You see, dear people, the soul is deathless. God made it that way. The eternal God who created us in His image has no beginning and no end. And as His creatures... We have a beginning, but we have no end. And note something else. In the same way that we feel pain and pleasure in this life, so so shall our souls after death and body and soul after the resurrection. Our decomposed bodies We'll feel nothing as we await the resurrection, but our souls are very alive and very responsive. At death, we will experience either incredible happiness or unspeakable agony. This is because our soul is deathless. It is not destroyed at death. It cannot die. It lives on forever. God has set eternity in our hearts, and I don't know all the implications of that. But we know that death is not the end. Saint and sinner alike, we may try to convince ourselves if we don't know Christ, that death is going to end it all, but it doesn't. No, the end is only the beginning. Notice, first of all, the poor man's comfort. Christ has conquered the final enemy, Death, He has removed its terrible sting by his bearing in his own body God's punishment for all the sins of every believer in Jesus And therefore we can only say of true Christians that they are in a far better place when they die we often hear at funerals of unbelievers showed no evidence of the grace of God in their lives and even if they died in agonizing death, we might say they're in a better place. But brethren, that's not what the Bible teaches. They're in a far worse place. They never knew suffering like they know it now. Lazarus exchanged a life of pain and trouble in this world for eternal pleasures and rest in heaven. Verse 22 says, He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now see, see Jesus using that language is speaking in terms that every Jew would understand. To recline on Abraham's bosom is to occupy the chief place of blessing and honor. His head is laying upon the heart of the great patriarch. It was upon Christ's Bosom that John reclined at the Last Supper. The place of great blessing is to repose our head upon the bosom of Christ. Lazarus, the true son of Abraham, rests his head upon the patriarch's bosom. At death, Righteous Lazarus joined the honored company of the spirits of just men made perfect in heaven. Before he had lived among the dogs of the earth, now he dwells among the angels of heaven and the patriarchs and prophets, and with the angels, indeed with God himself. It is paradise promised by our dying Lord to the believing thief. Today you shall be with me in paradise, and that's where Lazarus was when he died. If Jesus' description of Lazarus' unexpected home in heaven didn't shock the Pharisees, surely they would have been appalled at the destiny, the eternal destiny of their champion, the rich man. Notice the rich man's misery. The rich man's destiny is as tragic as it is common. He found that no amount of riches can forestall the day of death, position and influence in this life does not impress God now in one iota. So dying in his sin, the rich man feels the unending, unbearable sting of death. Right after he had gasped his last breath, he suddenly realizes amidst all his outward pomp and show what a miserable wretch he really is. And there's no time to change it now. Though the Bible is silent in the manner of his transport to the grave, the grave to his fiery abode, perhaps Satan or one of his infernal angels seized his naked soul and thrust him down into the belly of hell. While others were eulogizing him at his Funeral, he'd begun experiencing unending agony in the abode of the damned. I believe the Bible teaches, if we had time, we could turn to passages, that God custom-tailors hell's terror to to exact the greatest possible torment from the impenitent. Fire is often used in the scriptures to picture the unspeakable horror of hell. Immediately, the deceased rich man writhes in torment of an inescapable fire. I don't know if you were watching any of the news reports upon the fires in Maui, but they came on like gangbusters. The people weren't even ready for it. It swept swept all around them. They ran for their lives. And many of them ran all the way to the ocean and it got as far out into the deep water as they could away from the heat that was coming at them, barreling like a roller coaster. They went out, they dipped themselves in, came up and they tried to stay cool. They had some relief from the flames, but not this rich man and all those that he represents. He's going to ask, as we're going to see, for a merciful drop of water. But he's denied even that. We have to ask ourselves, at this point, did the rich man, we talk about people when they think they're going to die, their whole life goes before their eyes. They remember everything. What about this rich man? When he died... And Did he review his wretched life and and now begin to reproach himself for his folly things? He couldn't go back and change He had lived for himself. He dwelt in opulence He consumed all of God's good gifts upon his lusts He had never honored God or given him thanks nor did he ever lift a finger to relieve the poor beggars misery Brethren, the Bible teaches us that God will not be mocked. Now he is reaping what he had sown. He had never helped poor Lazarus when God had given him opportunity after opportunity. And now the rich man is forever barred from God's help. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall reap from the flesh corruption You see, he had sown the wind and now he's reaping the whirlwind. He now abruptly awakes from his dreamy and cushy life in the fires of unutterable agony in hell. And to increase his agony, he spies Lazarus. Now he opens his eyes and sees him. He sees Lazarus dwelling with Abraham in blessed peace and happiness. And this side of Lazarus' bliss only heaped more coals upon his tortured soul. Forever burned into his brain and tormenting his soul are the wasted occasions for doing Lazarus good while he was on earth. You see, the sun had set upon the day of grace. The time for repentance and reparation was lost to him now forever. Now, brethren, we would be wrong to conclude that the rich man repented in hell. Remorse is not repentance. And no doubt he felt remorse for the sins that landed him there. But this is the sorrow of the world that Paul speaks about. You see, the sorrow of the world only brings death. Repentance is impossible in hell. Now is the day of salvation, not after we die. We have to get right with God here and now, not there and then. It won't happen. You see, the opportunity for repentance is on this side of the grave. There's no second chance on the other. In hell, the rich man still hated God and would reject mercy had it been offered him. He sinned away the day of grace. He still viewed himself as good and unworthy of punishment. He still despised Lazarus. He still regarded him now. In glory as beneath his dignity in hell as we shall see still ordering him around from hell. The rich man in hell desired only bodily comforts, not spiritual. He wanted relief, but he didn't want heaven. And so he requests Lazarus to abandon heaven and bring him comfort in hell. Brethren, we are reminded that we die as we have lived. But that's not all. Not only do men not get better in hell, they get worse. What do I mean? Those who have lived relatively wicked lives on earth live perfectly wicked lives in hell. How can I say that? Well, brethren, total depravity gives way to absolute depravity. Sinners in hell become as bad as they can possibly be. God gives the damned over to the power of their sin. Revelation twenty two eleven. let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And since there is no longer any restraint of common grace in hell, the damned will be as bad as they can possibly be. Again, what is worse, there is no special grace in hell. There's no repentance from sin, no faith in Christ, no spiritual interest in others' welfare. There's nothing happy, but everything horrific in hell. Furthermore, there's absolutely no communion between heaven and hell. Look at verse 26. And besides all this between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. In heaven and hell, men's eternal destinies are forever and unchangeably fixed. This fact alone excludes the possibility of purgatory. You see, hell is not a place of remedial punishment. It is a place of retributive punishment. Men don't get better in hell. God measures out the sentence that our sins deserve if we die impenitent. Sins of commission, things that we did that we were told not to do. Sins of omission, things that we should have done, but didn't, as in the case of the rich man and Lazarus. Sins of impenitence, our hard hearts, we would not bend our knee, we would not plead for mercy. Sins of unbelief, I will not believe in this one that God sent. Sins of despising the gospel of God's mercy in Christ, I'll have none of it. I pull myself up to heaven by my own bootstraps. Thank you. I'm a good person. Lazarus may need Jesus, but I don't need him. Indeed, brethren, as one old writer, Mr. Shedd has somewhere said, the wicked in hell become all the greater sinners because their punishment makes them hate God all the more vehemently, vehemently, for his just punishment of them. Well, next Lord's Day, we'll consider important truths implied in the rich man's foolish and impossible request. But in the remaining moments this morning, I would have us briefly notice three concluding observations. First of all, A man's esteem before the world is no sure reflection of his esteem before God. A man's esteem before the world is no sure reflection of his esteem before God. You see, the men of this age value people according to their power, to their popularity, to their prestige, to their prosperity. God, on the other hand, values men according to their likeness to his son, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you then, whom do you most esteem? Is it the Lazaruses, the faith of Lazarus? Or is it that I can do all things through my own strength of the rich man? After whom do you aspire? Who are your role models? Who do you look up to? Who do you pattern your life after? We all do. Someone or some various persons. Is it the proud or those who are poor in spirit? Is it those rich in worldly goods or rich in faith? Do you hanker after the applause of men or the approval of God? What is your idea of true greatness? Is it holy Lazarus or the haughty rich man? You see, our answer to such questions suggests how we are viewed by God. Do you by grace have God's esteem? Paul encourages Christians despised by the world but loved by God with these words at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are. To what end? That no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Secondly, our outward condition in life is no sure forecast of our eternal condition after death. Appearances can be very deceiving. Those rich in this world's good goods may be destitute of true wealth. What they have is like sand. It's going to slip through their fingers. They haven't laid hold of Christ, who to have him and have nothing. You have everything ultimately. And those poor in things of time may prove themselves rich in eternal treasure. And though they may be trampled on by the boot heels of of wicked men, they will prove themselves the darlings of heaven at last. You see, each one of us is either laying up incorruptible treasures in heaven, or we are stoking the fires of hell by the way we live in this world. Listen to Paul, Romans chapter two verses five through nine. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil." Frightening words, are they not? Oh, may we, t- may we hear and heed. Thirdly and finally, heaven and hell are sure places of conscious, inescapable, eternal bliss or torment. Now, we're going to consider this sober truth more in depth next time. But let us be warned. Eternal bliss or unending misery awaits each one of us. And the question we must ask and answer with judgment day, honesty, which will it be? Let me ask you, what will death mean for you? Have you fled to Jesus Christ from the wrath to come? You see, this is a message that is to point us to Christ, the remedy for our sin. And oh, may God open our eyes to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up, dying for sinners like you and for me. And may he shot our feet with the graces of faith and repentance that we might run to the cross with our backs to this world, with our face to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, these are indeed very somber things to consider, but you have put them in your holy word to instruct us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And therefore we pray that we would make our calling and election sure. We would examine ourselves and test ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. For your people, we pray that you would encourage them to, to open their eyes as you have many here to see the needs around them and strive so far as you enable them to fulfill their duty, meet those needs by the riches that you supply to them. And Lord, let none of us be tight-fisted and grasping after the things of this world, which will only turn to sand in our hands and fire in hell. So Lord, do a mighty work, show mercy. We are entirely undeserving of your mercy, but you delight to show mercy. May we come to you this hour and leave this place saying it has been good to be here because this one that we heard spoken of, this God in heaven, even as he was for Lazarus, is our help. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.